Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. A quick disclaimer, the views expressed by the guest and the host, which is me, are solely personal and do not reflect the position of their employers. Today we have Anastasia Volkova with us. She is the CEO and co-founder of Regrow, which is doing amazing stuff in the area of agri-products and making the world more sustainable and trying to reverse climate change. So let's dive in and discuss with her what all the amazing things that are happening at Regrow and in agri-space in general. So welcome to the podcast, Anastasia. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I was very intrigued uh, about your thesis. So your thesis is feature-based visual navigation. Okay, so far, so good. In GPS-denied environment. So that was quite <laughs> interesting to me. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, it's teaching drones to see. Is that better? <laughs> <laughs> but without GPS, how do you do that? Yeah, like humans do. Um, like, let's imagine you're uh, flying above Paris. Like, if you've seen Paris before from the height of an airplane, you know where you're flying from, where you're above, and where you're flying to, because you're able to see landmarks, you're able to see the curve of Seine, you maybe are able to see the Eiffel Tower and Trocadero, and you're able to see all the surroundings, and you're like, okay, so we're approaching from this side, and we're kind of heading south west that's the way that humans navigate and they don't have to actually know their gps location for that and so drones or high altitude drones uh, by drones we don't just mean like this small quadrocopters that everyone calls drones now but this can be actually uh, high altitude flight machines that just don't have a pilot they need to navigate in a space where they do not get gps signal or for some reason they shouldn't be getting that signal for example uh it's the environment in which it's sensitive they're doing reconnaissance or some some searches for i don't know survivors or if they're looking to recover and get back to their base uh, it can be military civilian applications uh specifically first aid applications any of those this machine can recognize using its cameras the location it's above and the series of locations it's flying over to understand its course, its direction, its speed of flight, its altitude, all from just looking and analyzing the pictures underneath and comparing them with the known map. This kind of reminds me of what happens on the satellite. There's star trackers, which essentially do a similar thing. You don't have GPS, so you compare, take a snapshot and try to map, match it with the known night sky, kind of uh, just like the way ancient humans used to do, used to navigate on the high sea. But what's, what's interesting is when we're looking down on the earth, there's so much more feature. That means there's so much more reference data that this drone has to store to be able to do that. Or when you're planning an operation, you are actually loading a map, like, you know, when you can pick up your phone and you're um, knowingly headed in a place where you may not have very good um, 4G signal or just mobile reception, you will download a Google map for a specific area you're going to explore because you want to have it on you. That's the idea with these GPS denied high altitude drones so that you would preload the map for the area of operation that's relatively large because realistically you know how long this thing can fly so you know the radius of its operation that is self-limited unless you have very good solar powered solar recharging uh, systems on board okay now now i get it this is this is so cool wow i wish i could do a phd on something as awesome as that maybe one day in future 
as we see in your career path, right? So you did your bachelor's and master's, and then you dived right into the academia. And right after that, you started your your company, Florasat. Can you talk about how this transition was from the academia to the startup world, not even the industry, but the startup world, which is so insane? Yeah, it always looks like um, such a clear cut on the resume, but the world is not a clear cut. So really, I was... Um, very interested in startups and I was involved in part-time working uh, in startups uh, during my uh, two masters and later on during my PhD I already started my company so it wasn't just something that occurred to me one day that hey let's go and start a company or um, hey I need to become an entrepreneur Um, no I I realized that I want to solve important problems therefore I need to achieve something academically to have the contributions of substance, also because um, pathways like PhD and master's teach you persistence, teach you asking the right questions, teach you finding the way where no path has been laid before. So it's quite a structured, usually, <laughs> relatively structured way of achieving the goal that hasn't been achieved before. It combined with the experience of working at other businesses close to founders, close to the CEOs, seeing what the startup kitchen is like and how it operates, I quite early on realized that that compared, for example, with very short corporate experience that I had, I would rather be in a startup where I can be solving a problem that's of significance. So I wanted to combine these two worlds, something that I would be able to achieve and be giving the world of value academically combined with the entrepreneurialism and business as a change maker. These two pieces together is what I wanted to do. And that was my kind of parallel path. Although when you look at the resume, one side of it may be a little bit more shiny than the other. (laughs) Yeah, I really like this part that you wanted to gain a lot of field expertise before embarking on it commercially, but I would like to come back to that perhaps later. Before that, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, Regrow, Florisat, which now merged with Dagon and then grew into Regrow. About Regrow, do you focus on providing uh, agri products? So you offer a lot of insights for the agri community. What kind of data sources do you use to develop these products in addition to satellite imagery, of course? Yeah, I love that you say, of course, <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> um, yeah, so on top of that, weather data, soil maps, information from IoT devices, um, effectively Kanban, so tractors that are connected and sending the information in, or IoT devices, all of that information, plus the statistical surveys that governments on the state and federal level uh, are collecting. So all the data we can possibly find. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Do you also have a lot of these IoT sensors? Do you deploy any sensors? So in our application, we're trying to we're trying to make it as cost effective as possible, as scalable as possible. And really that means that you shouldn't be using as much IoT, as much hardware that's deployed. IoT works really well when you kind of disperse it as the ground truth information in the right locations that are representative of a larger landscape that you have pre-mapped using something like remote sensing. That's like the best of both worlds. You get the coverage and then you get the specifics. So when it comes to soil carbon or to understanding how people are managing their land, we actually collect the data on the ground from other sources. So we provide 
intelligence to farmers. Sometimes in return for it, we get extra observations that enhance our models. Or we actually fund the data collection on the ground to cover specific areas that are otherwise not covered very well so we can have representative models. So IoT is not always a solution given it's um, quite an it's an, quite an expensive exercise, um, but there are specific ways to generate data that really advance both the models and the business. Okay, wow, interesting. So when we look at agri-solutions, uh, right, the whole agri-game, farming practices in general, they are quite, uh, they vary quite a lot across geographies. So for example, uh, a typical farm size, if you look at farm sizes, a typical farm in a country like India is probably like one acre or less than an acre uh, compared to the farms in Australia or in the US or geographies like that. So how do you make sure that your agri-solutions are scalable across geographies? (laughs) It starts with first up, really acknowledging, and that's the case, and acknowledging the diversity in the world, in the agricultural environment, can mean a lot of things. We have a very diverse team that covers many of those geographies because they either come from those places or had the privilege to travel to those places. Like I've been in India a couple of times and I actually have seen those farms and I have the appreciation for what they look like and how they have maybe some mixed crop patches where a couple of crops are grown. So no sentinel imagery can help you identify what that is because it's a mix of five things. Um, But back to your question on how do you build something that is inclusive and um, It's almost about equitable technology that will be accessible to the communities in different areas. Um, We pay quite a lot of attention to it and we do it in different phases and stages. So we believe that for the business to become the change that we want to see in the world to, to create that change, we really need to be a financially viable business. So of course, our focus is on helping those that have a lot of funding to put into improvement of the ecosystem. So um, the work that focuses on, say, developed world um, helps us build up a lot of the technology and the um, tools that we can then use in other areas in partnerships with non-for-profits. We may announce either later this year or early next year an exciting project specifically for smallholder farmers that will be quite quite large and it's a long-term project. We're quite excited about it. Um, And that'll be our way that we will take part of our team, part of our resources, part of our attention, take some of our resources that we've built, some of our technologies, innovation and put it to serve smallholder farmers. It will absolutely require dedicated effort on making it further applicable and customized to that area to a certain extent. Of course, we have things that do work across Australia, France, US and Brazil, but that doesn't necessarily stretch all the way to, say, India or Sri Lanka. So there is some (laughs) levels of customizations additionally that are required. That's interesting. Now that you mentioned your team, could you talk about uh, your team and what kind of backgrounds they come from? Yes. I think one of the reasons why I am in this is because of them and because I really wanted to find my tribe, have my tribe, build my tribe and be able to achieve something that's of impact, that's meaningful. Um, As a young person myself, I was 
looking around and saying, well, climate change is a massive problem. Why is no one doing anything? And how can I actually do something that does help that problem very tangibly? Um, and I thought that there will be other people like me who I will eventually find. Um, and so I'm just so happy that I have found many of them. And now when we're becoming a bit more known, it's easier to find them. And also the kind of accretion disk is, is growing in the sense that our people are bringing more amazing people in. And that's just so beautiful to see. Um, the background are quite quite diverse. We speak over 10 languages. We're currently the team is based in eight countries last time we counted, but probably more wow. now. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And it's just uh, the, the representation of the world out there inside the company. And it's it's just it's just real. <laughs> Amazing. Looks like you guys were COVID ready before COVID. That's right. That's right. And uh, it, uh, it goes uh, quite a long way back to some of the first businesses that I, I started and worked in, or they were more like consultancy projects where we actually used to go overseas and, and work from other places to just kind of test out whether that remote uh, kind of digital nomad lifestyle will work. This is quite a long time ago. And I really appreciated it. And I thought, well, if I want to have it for myself, I actually, when I do start the company, want everyone to be able to do that so that they can work and have their life work balance um, and be in the place where they want to be without necessarily having to be somewhere in particular. <laughs> Interesting. Now that you mentioned, you know, the bunch of other consulting projects that you've done, uh, of course, Regrow or Fluorosat, I'm pretty sure it wasn't your, the very first idea you had. You must have done a lot of, uh, a lot of things, have experimented with a lot of different things. So can you talk a little bit about how you experimented? What did you learn and what finally brought you to Regrow? Yeah, that's a really great question. And uh, I, I, yeah, um, I did do other things before. So when I was thinking of what would be the problem that I would be really passionate about starting or what would be the project that I would be really passionate about leading, I thought what problems resonate with me. And one of the problems um, was that I really love learning languages and um, I've learned over the years of my life quite a few languages. And I always felt that Europe could do a little bit of a better job connecting native speakers that traveled to different places with, well, connecting foreigners to people who wanted them as native speakers to practice language, especially if they stayed in that country for a little longer. So say you're traveling to France, but you actually speak German. Um, wouldn't someone who's French and learning German want to spend a bit more time with you, maybe for a coffee? maybe semi-regularly, maybe you do become friends and you practice that way. So I started the, the project. It was a kind of a small project that I started developing. It was around the exchange of knowledge around languages and, and meeting other people. And I was actually pretty excited to meet someone who started a platform that was in the same space, but uh, focused more on connecting you to native speakers who were teachers for hire. And I thought, okay, well, I'm very young. I want to know how to do this. I haven't done this before. I haven't seen anyone do, do, do this, bef do this before uh, in front of me. So how about I join this person? Because it's the same topic and I do want to learn how is it done and what they've learned about this industry. So I've joined them as a business development uh, manager. I learned quite a bit from from the founder. They at the time had 
a company registered in the US. And now it's interesting that that was very long time ago. And now their business is at about the same stage as, as Regrow. <laughs> Maybe Regrow is a little bit further along. So it's been an interesting journey that that one of the kind of passions of mine led to an exploration that led to really knowing Startup Kitchen more than any particular industry. That's so cool. I mean, uh, that, that's really interesting. Uh, as in, you know, joining different companies and trying to learn. That's, that's sure that's a fascinating way to learn. Just out of curiosity, before we proceed, which all languages do you speak? <laughs> uh, are we going to count or list? <laughs> a list would be great. Well, that would be starting with Russian, Ukrainian, Polish, German, Italian, Spanish, French, Portuguese. <laughs> wow. Uh, learning Portuguese now. Um, maybe I forgot something. I mean, English, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone lists English anymore, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's right. It's, it's, it's like math. It's like no, knowing how to count. It doesn't count. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Wow, wow, wow. That's 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 amazing. Okay. I used to think that I know a lot a lot of languages coming from India, but I I, I don't want to list the ones I know. <laughs> it's just when you're European, you feel like you want to speak to all your friends and understand what they're gossiping about or understand <laughs> that really juicy word that in Italian really says it all with the expression when you're like gesturing. You this is the passion. <laughs> Totally, I completely understand that because even in India, stand-up comedy is actually one of the biggest motivators to learn a language. Wow! So the stand-up comedy scene in India, the the regional stand-up comedy scene is fantastic. A lot of it happens in English, and they use a lot of phrases from the local language, like you said. And to completely un- appreciate the joke, you should know all that. So yeah, yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> also, what's really interesting that I found on uh, on the website of Regrow is that you want to reverse climate change. Wow. Can you can you please elaborate on that? <laughs> it's something that we really hope is starting to is, is going to start to happen soon rather than the acceleration in the opposite direction. In the millennia that humanity has lived as more or less organized tribe, we have learned how to farm the land and we've turned it to produce what we want and really be suitable for the needs of our growing population. With it, we've gone through wars, industrial revolutions, and we've accelerated the rate of extraction of nutrients from the soil, as well as invented synthetic fertilizers that further boosted the productivity of our crops. We haven't necessarily thought about the fact that plowing the soil or turning it over uh, growing the same crops on it over and over again, separating the livestock uh, from cropping systems and um, also keeping forests completely separate. This is not suit nature. That's not how it operates. And that ultimately becomes unsustainable because we make it very dependent on us, including artificial nutrients. When we plow the soil, we actually release carbon into the atmosphere. When we leave it plowed, it may be then eroded and then taken away with the wind or rain. So with the topsoil, we're losing the productivity, the organic matter, and all the good things that will be able to rebuild the health of the soil and improve the nutritious value of our food. So when you look deeper into the way that food is produced and the way that conventional large-scale agriculture is currently done, it has been optimized 
as the result of the Second World War to really produce calories at scale and at a certain price point, because it's also a security issue. It's something that governments really need to pay attention to. You need to be able to feed your growing population. But then it becomes a point of export business, something that you really can make money off of. Having said that, we don't necessarily always take into account all the costs of externalities that the production of a particular crop or commodity comes with. So how much have we taken from the land and have not paid back? Have we considered having an agricultural system that's more resilient, that is not accelerating the climate change, but actually is cooling the planet and possibly reversing it. That's something that we believe with the current technologies, with the new understanding about the science of how we should treat the soil, how we should farm, we can actually do as humanity. And this is in my personal opinion, and many scientists also put a lot of scientific works out there that demonstrate that Agricultural soils is one of the most accessible solutions to climate change. 2020 World Nobel Prize winner for food and peace, Dr. Ratan Lal, who's your fellow Indian, he talks about soil carbon specifically as one of the biggest solutions to climate change. And that's just so important for everyone to learn about it fast and to know how when we're grocery shopping, we can actually invest in things that help regenerate the land and cool the planet it's it, it's just a wonderful solution that we need to learn more about and invest more into great that's wonderful i i think someone is already working on this kind of thing right you you take a product at the grocery store and then scan it with your smartphone and you know immediately know the entire supply chain that went into producing that product and how sustainable it is and that's one way of uh, thinking about it. The traceability is quite important. The QR codes are key to that, to engage in us as a consumer to the source. But really, majority of agriculture does not come with that QR code. It goes directly to animals or sometimes even used for fuel. And we are not necessarily incentivizing it, the, ch- the change in it, the way that we incentivize in premium grocery stores that can afford to excite us and engage us as a consumer. So it is important to see that take the change on the on the mass scale uh, rather than more in the in a kind of a boutique premium line way okay wow that's that's very interesting never looked at it this way thanks for that so if you look at the entire the whole earth observation applications game right now so we see broadly two parallel tracks one is companies upstream companies companies which are building satellites uh, they are integrating vertically and doing the satellite manufacturing operations image processing and also taking the product to the customer and on the other hand we have as in the other parallel track is companies like yours which are powered by individuals like you with strong domain expertise which of these trends do you think will sustain in the in the near future and in the long term you need both in a sense that one is a horizontal technology and upstream piece is very horizontal in a sense that Launching satellites is the capability and knowledge and expertise set that is very specialized, but it creates a platform that captures information that is a horizontal platform for feeding the data and the insights into many industries. When you're launching a satellite, you're not just looking at targeting one industry or particular country. You're creating a broad platform of data you can serve many customers with. With that platform of data, then individual verticals really take it and make it into added value products that hopefully are taking it all the way to the user, to the consumer of the data, to the decision maker, because that's where the change happens. We want to 
to be easy. We want everything to be easy. As a click of a button, we want to know not just where the data comes from. We just want to know the insights, hear them out, make a decision, be done with it, and not spend too much time doing it. So that's just the way that I see the intersection of horizontal platforms and nurse observation that are quite important and are quite complementary. Usually there's a reasonable analysis that's being done by every company that launches anything to understand in terms of the wavelength, resolution, altitude, um, many aspects revisit um, of what are the windows of opportunity of what the market is ready to pay for and when that something is being offered and usually is is complementary to the offerings from European Space Agency, USGS, uh, Indian Space Agency or JAXA, then private companies have their own space, for example, like um, frequent revisit, higher resolution, smaller satellites that do not have as high of a quality of data but have the frequency um, both of those data streams are extremely important, but then they need to be combined with additional data sources like what we covered already that are useful for that specific domain and application to turn the data into insights that can be acted upon and, and delivered all the way to the inbox of the consumer or even in the app where they are used to making these decisions. That last mile delivery is very long. So not only upstream pathways long to launch something, but the downstream is much longer than people realize of how much you need to do with the data to actually make it actionable, consumable, and making a difference in the world. Wow. Wow, that's that's very interesting. When you consume, when you look for satellite data to power your solutions, is there enough data or in terms of you know spectral, temporal, or uh, spatial resolutions? Or do you find there is always, you're always looking for some data that, some kind of data that's not there? It's a combination of different factors. You can't just ask for a different data set because, of course, what you're asking for has to make financial sense um, and it has to also be an opportunity in the market that's interesting enough for enough consumers um, in the market um, that is, for example, agriculture big enough, but hopefully also is able to to pay whilst not all of the markets are equally able to pay. Maybe if we're looking at um, infrastructure markets, they're a lot more um, capable of making payments for high resolution data than agriculture is given its margins. So we need to consider the fact that the consumers and data scientists always want more data. The ability to pay for it, it's a different question. <laughs> So what kind of analytics or, you know, in general, what kind of space companies do you think are yet to be started? For example, we have image analytics companies like yours focusing on agri. We have companies focusing on marine applications, logistics. What else do you think could be done? Yeah, some of the recent applications that we're very excited about and a lot more can be done in that space is monitoring greenhouse gases. There is no easy solution to this problem. If you think about it, you're looking down at the planet, and if you're looking at it in a particular spectrum, so to speak, speaking like an Earth observation nerd, <laughs> um, you can maybe detect the emissions, but really capturing the emissions and the source of emissions at a particular resolution that makes sense with the instruments that would be sensitive enough to both capture the resolution at a very small amount. It's, it's a tough balance, but um, there is a couple of, resource platforms that are going into orbit that 
I'm very excited about and want to see a lot more in that space because in the same way that we've become accountable for land use change once we had the family of Landsat, Sentinels, etc., we will be accountable for greenhouse gases whilst we have a family of satellites that makes it obvious where the emissions take place. Currently, we have to do a lot of it with modeling and with limited amount of observations uh, that are more implicit. Uh, we observe the outcomes of certain practices that we know lead to emissions or to a higher level of emissions. But if you could actually see the emissions, then we could just all stop arguing about the measurement values, even if it was relative, even if we could image the world in the relative metrics of emissions, we would be obviously seeing where some of these weak spots were that we need to pay a lot more attention to. Okay, interesting and very interesting. Coming back to regrow, congratulations on raising a lot of investment recently. <laughs> Thank you. On Series A. Uh, but that said, what are the biggest challenges regrow is facing right now? Well, since we're on this podcast, I can only tell you that we always want to have more amazing people who are passionate about agriculture and earth observation and remote sensing and are keen to create solutions for the future of this planet. I'm always saying that although there is a lot of graduates and people are in this space, it always feels like you can go one step further in finding the very best people who are passionate about this and are going to create absolutely unbelievable solutions because of their passion and their dedication and the path that they took in life to learn more about it. So one of our growing pains is finding amazing people fast enough, given that we are a little conservative in the way that we're hiring in the sense that we want to see and really make sure that the person is the right person for us um, rather than hiring is the first person we meet and we end up with an absolutely amazing team but that does give us a little bit of a bottleneck on bringing people on board and, and growing yeah finding talent um, i'm sure it's, it's it's a huge pain for companies at all phases i, I guess it's a global problem across <laughs> all industries yeah so speaking of human resources what skill set is needed to start a career at regrow or in general in companies like Regrow? Yeah, um, I would say when you're looking at such companies that you've already outlined, they use our observation data. Um, so it's a remote sensing component. They certainly have quite a, a large component that's connected to domain expertise. For us, it's crop and soil modeling. But also, we are a large data platform that has all the aspects of ML, AI, very large scale infrastructure, platforms, data storage, management, DevOps. So these are just the modern components of any software, well, of software that is domain specific in my case, but of course the infrastructure and the technology for hosting software and developing software is a little bit more universal yet. I think finding the passion for working with the main expertise and with scientists is not something that absolutely every engineer has. And so this is quite quite special and that we are finding a lot of great engineers who are very passionate about climate change and have recently changed their, their jobs to be actually working on something that does actively contribute to solving the problem. So I'm very glad to to see that change, especially among the, the young generation. But I would say the triplet, like almost every company would have their triplet of what their core expertise is, what their enabling technologies are, and what their kind of 
software cloud infrastructure is or or a delivery method is. I've also read this a statistic that a majority chunk of the Gen Z, for instance, wants to work pursue a career that contributes to fighting climate change. So I'm sure you're going to have a lot of uh, great talent to pick from. <laughs> and that said, thank you, Anastasia. It's been a really amazing insights you've shared and you've given me new perspectives to think about this whole space solving problems on earth and that said if space enthusiasts or anybody interested in joining you in the fight against climate change what's the best way to reach you yeah i guess linkedin is the best place to find anyone <laughs> that's the short answer as well as uh, of course visit our website and have a look at our open positions maybe there is one that looks just like your dream job no <laughs> thank you for spending your t- giving your time and for the amazing insights and the great conversation hope we can meet in person sometime and chat a little more yeah thank you so much it was fun uh, thank you for the great questions i loved uh, especially the one about uh, my previous experience that led to to starting the company um yeah it's a, it's been really great to reflect i'm glad you find it so and if you're around in berlin sometime or trying to practice your german a little bit i used to visit berlin a lot more but yeah not not right now <laughs> hopefully if you're around sometime would love to catch up absolutely thank you so much take care